Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning. And while you're turning there, um, I had not planned on doing this, but Kelly sent me a text this morning of Artem on the way like getting ready to come to church today, and I've got a proud daddy moment, and so I want to I want to play this for you. Check this out. Where do you want to go? Church. What? Church. Where? Church. Church. So I hope you guys are as excited to be here as Artem is, all right? Artem is stoked about being in church today, and I hope and pray that you guys are as well. So let me put this back on Do Not Disturb or else someone will inevitably call me Scott. So let's do that. Try not to get in trouble here. Uh, so this morning... Uh, we're going to be finishing up chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes. It's going to be verses 15 to 29. Uh, but I, I want this said from the start that we're going to be really primarily focused on uh, verses 15 to 18. And I wanted to give you that heads up because I was really drawn to those verses this week. And so I have a lot more to say about that than the rest of the passage. And I don't want you to freak out when we get to verse 19 and you look and see what time it is. Right, so I'm trying to give you a, a, a forewarning. Uh, this is a front-heavy sermon this week, but the back two-thirds, we're just going to breeze by that. Um, and if you weren't here last week and you're afraid you're going to be lost because we're in the middle of a chapter, you don't need to worry about that because last week Solomon was utilizing a proverb style of writing to get across uh, some information, kind of scattered thoughts on death and on wisdom in the first part of chapter 7. He starts with those verses with a focus on living our lives with the reality of death hanging over us. We should, it's better to think about death than it is to live frivolously throughout life. Uh, we need to consider that one day we're going to die and then we're going to face judgment. So it's important to think about that and how uh, well we use the time that we've been given here on earth. So Solomon is saying we should think more about our end than our beginning. We should think about the reputation that we have, the reputation that we leave uh, with the people around us after we're gone. Um, in the first part of those verses, he says things like it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party uh, because then we'll think about what really matters in life. He, he also says that grief is better than laughter because we learn more from hardship in life. We learn more from difficulties uh, than we do when life is going well. After that, Solomon points out other ways that we can implement wisdom in our lives. He mentions uh, being wise. It, it's better to have a wise rebuke than it is to have the laughter of fools. So you can go out and do stupid things, and it's better to have someone call you out on those things in a wise way than it is to have people surrounding you that just laugh at your stupidity. 
Right? He tells us that wise people don't extort money from other people and they don't take bribes. He says patience is better than pride. He says don't be too quick to anger because anger abides in the hearts of fools. Don't look too longingly at the past because it doesn't help us because today is here. He keeps going on and on uh, in that regard. So this week, Solomon is going to continue his focus on wisdom in this chapter. Uh, but as with everything that is under the sun, he's going to make a case that shows that wisdom alone has its limits. Right? There are simply things that are too hard to understand because they don't always make sense. And there's always the problem of human sinfulness that we have to deal with along the way. So no matter how wise we are, we still have a sin nature that battles against us. And so ultimately, our wisdom will fail us from time to time. So with that in mind, let's pray to the Lord for wisdom as we jump into the last part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, so I'm going to pray and then we'll get into our passage for this morning. Father, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to get into your word this morning that we get to spend this time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we get to be edified by all that you have for us this morning. We're grateful that you speak to us through your word, that we can rely on it, we can trust it, we know that it is authoritative in our life. And Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of all the good gifts that you have given us, and including wisdom. And Lord, you said in the book of James that if we lack wisdom, what we need to do is ask you for that. And if we ask without doubting, you are faithful to give us wisdom when we pursue it. And I pray that you would help us be wise people here this morning. Lord, it's your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So as I said, we're going to start off in verses 15 to 18. This is going to be the majority of the sermon this morning is from these verses. So follow along with me as I read these. It says, In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness. Someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. So Solomon begins this passage by saying two things. Number one, his life has been futile, and he has seen it all. Now, I'm not sure if you will remember this or not, because we have been in Ecclesiastes for several months, but at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, I mentioned that the tone of this book carries with it the notion that we're hearing from an older Solomon who is now reflecting negatively on the ungodly choices and pursuits that he gave himself over to throughout his time as the king. And now, in verse 15, we're getting to see part of the support for that. Right? He's acknowledging that his life has been futile. And he's acknowledging that he has seen it all. So it sounds like we are listening to a man who is full of sorrow. We're listening to a man who is experiencing guilt and shame for how he has lived his life 
But it also carries with it this notion that that life was very full. Right? With his wealth, with his power as the king, there is nothing that Solomon kept from himself. Right? He was extremely self-indulgent. He pursued every aspect of power he could get his hands on. He went after every ounce of prestige that he could get his hands on. It looks like he went after every woman that he could get his hands on. Right? Everything that he wanted, he gave himself over to it. Solomon made sure that if he had the desire, that that desire was met. And yet, at the end of it all, as he is self-reflecting on this life, this life that many of us would long for, right? Give me the power. Give me the money. Give me the prestige. Give me the relationships. I want all of this. We would pursue after that, and yet Solomon had it all, and he says at the end that it was all futile. All of it. Why? Because none of the stuff that he had abundant access to brings any kind of ultimate satisfaction none of that brings any kind of ultimate hope and none of it has any staying power whatsoever i mean it's all gone eventually everything that we have will either go to someone else or it will just wither up after it's gone right everything that solomon was able to accumulate for himself when he died it was dispersed among other people and yes, he still has a bit of a reputation, but that reputation is not exactly the greatest, is it? Like we still talk about Solomon. We still say that he was one of the wisest men that ever lived, but he was a terrible dad. He was a terrible husband, and he wasn't a great king for all the wisdom that he had. Nothing that we acquire on this earth is going with us any at all after we go before our Creator. And one day we will be face to face with that Creator. One day, we will stand before God and we will face judgment. And in that moment, there's going to be two things about your life that matter. Number one, what did you do with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Are you standing before God in your own merit? Or are you standing before God having accepted the free gift of salvation offered through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus how will you stand before God? That's the first thing that will matter. And the second thing that will matter is what did you do for the kingdom of God? Throughout Ecclesiastes, we've been seeing, and throughout many of the other books that we have studied, we see that God is going to hold us accountable for how we lived our lives. What did you do with what you were given? Nothing else will matter. Not your position at your company, not your relationships, not how good of a spouse or father you were, not how much money you had, none of that will matter. And until that day, until the day that we stand before God face to face, we are left here on this earth to face and deal with paradoxes of a life that is lived on, in and on a cursed world. We're often faced with situations that simply don't make sense to us. One that Solomon points out early here in verse 15 is the fact that sometimes those who are righteous die early. While there are those who are evil that 
live long and thriving lives, seemingly, you know, no fear of God, facing no consequences for their pursuit of, of these evil things. But yet, we see some who we would say have died too soon, too early. Why would they take, why would God take one that was so good, so righteous? And because humanity is created in the image of God, there's this in, inherent sense of justice in us that wants to see this balanced out. Right, so when we see evil prospering while the righteous struggle, it just feels wrong to us. We don't get it. Why? Why would that happen? This sentiment is something that came up often in the Old Testament. I've, I've got four written down here, but there were many, many more. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 1, Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Psalm 73, verse 3, and this whole psalm is about this. I just took a little snippet of it. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 3 says, Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine, rise up, judge the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? And then in Job, Verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 7 to 15. He says, Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? Now remember, Job lost everything. Job was probably the most righteous man that had lived at this point in time, and he lost everything. Everything except for some boils on his back and a nagging wife that encouraged him to curse God and die. He has lost everything. And so he's saying, why do the wicked continue to live growing old and becoming powerful? Their children are established while they are still alive and their descendants before their eyes. Their homes are secure and free of fear. No rod from God strikes them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cow, cows calve and do not miscarry. They let their little ones run around like lambs. Their children skip about, singing to the tambourine and lyre and rejoicing at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and go down to Sheol in peace. Yet they say, God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what will we gain by pleading with Him? Job rightly questions what is going on. I am a righteous man. I have done nothing wrong and I have lost everything. And yet I look out here and I see these evil people, these people that are thriving as they do exactly what Job's wife encourages him to do, which is curse God and die. And yet they don't die. They don't get a rebuke from the Lord. So what do we do with this? All of these people are astounded that the wicked are prosperous while the righteous struggle. So what's Solomon's solution to this problem? Well, at first glance, it looks a little strange, doesn't it? It looks as though he just says, if you can't beat them, join them, but only a little bit. Right? Look again at verses 16 and 17. He says, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? So don't be excessively righteous or overly wise. Also, don't be excessively wicked or foolish because this could lead to death before your time. 
And so is Solomon here saying that it would be more practical for us to live a life of moderate righteousness and moderate evil? You know, kind of good, kind of bad. I mean, that would be sound advice if you didn't have any concept of the law of God. If you had no concept of what the Bible wants from you, if you didn't know what God wants from you, if you're not striving to be in that relationship with Him, then that seems to make sense. Be kind of good and kind of bad. But God expects, He expects perfection in our lives in order for us to have relationship with Him. So why would Solomon suggest that we should not be excessively righteous or excessively wise? That is literally the goal of God's people is to be as righteous as we possibly can. And the only way that we can be that righteous is to be wise. What is he saying here? Don't be excessively righteous. Well, what we have to do is we have to take context clues from the rest of the passage and we can get a better idea of what he's talking about. First of all, right after he tells us not to be excessively righteous or excessively wise, he suggests that this would destroy us. Now, righteousness is not what destroys us. It's what's expected of us. Right? If we do not have righteousness, then God has nothing to do with us. So what does the Bible actually say leads to our destruction? Well, if you read Proverbs 16, verse 18, the Bible says, Pride comes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It's not righteousness that destroys us, it's pride. That's the foundation of all sin. Right? You're thinking that you deserve more than what you have been given, You're thinking too much of yourself rather than what God has said about you in His law. And so, because we think we deserve more, we rebel in many different ways. Secondly, Solomon says in verse 20 that there are no righteous people in the world. This is probably where Paul gets his information from Romans chapter 3 when he just starts quoting things from the Old Testament. There are no righteous people in the world. So in his mind, it would be impossible for us to be too righteous because it's impossible to be righteous at all since there is no one who never sins. So too much pride is the real problem here, not excessive righteousness. But if you think about it, There is a group in the New Testament that is often condemned by Jesus for their excessive righteousness that stems from their pride. Y'all know who that is? Who is it? Pharisees. Thank you. It's the Pharisees. These people in the New Testament were the most outwardly righteous people in Israel. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 5.20 that if His disciples didn't have righteousness that surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then they would never get into the kingdom of heaven. Why did He say that? You weren't going to out-righteous the Pharisees. At least not outwardly. The problem is the Pharisees were only externally righteous. They were only interested in fulfilling the acts of the law without being concerned about the heart behind the law. They wanted to do all the things correctly, but they didn't want to do them for the right reason. 
They thought highly of themselves because of their level of righteousness. But Jesus would end up pronouncing seven woes on them in Matthew 23 due to their hardness of heart. He calls them whitewashed tombs. So you've got this place that looks good on the outside, but inside they are dead. So Solomon's call to refrain from being excessively righteous is a call to avoid the trap that the Pharisees had fallen into. Don't be deceived into thinking that you are so good that you don't need the Messiah. Don't be deceived into thinking that you are so good that you can stand before God on your own merit. In reality, there isn't any righteousness in you at all without Christ. Now, we've talked about the best that you have to offer the Lord is like a soiled diaper on your best day. Right? That is your righteousness. That is the gift that you offer to God when you stand before Him on your own terms, on your own merit, thinking that you don't need a Savior will lead to your destruction. But Solomon says also, don't go to the other extreme either. Being excessively wicked and foolish is a bad idea because those choices could also lead you to an early death. Right? He said that you know, the life has been futile and he's seen everything under the sun, including the righteous perishing early while the, the wicked live long extended lives. But that's just a generality. It's not a promise. Right? He has seen those who are young and stupid and foolish and wicked, they have also died early because they have done young, stupid, and foolish things. Right? So we must make wise choices in our lives, and we must also stay away from the extreme of wickedness. And so with that, you might be thinking, Solomon says, don't be excessively wicked. And so does that mean we can be a little bit wicked? Just a little. Just a little lie. We can just steal a little bit. No, you heathen, you can't do it even a little bit. Stop thinking that way. This is not something that Solomon is giving us permission to do. We can't be even just a little bit wicked. If, it, if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, then you should consider what Paul says to us in Romans 6, 1 and 2, where he says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And he says, absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Before that, he just said that where our sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And he anticipates people saying, well, then I should be able to sin all I want to because God's grace is sufficient to cover it all. And he says, no, you can't possibly be thinking about your sin this way and understand the holiness and righteousness of God. Solomon is not giving us permission to sin. And when him, with him saying, don't sin excessively, this is him assuming that because of your sin nature, you're already going to sin a little bit. But there's nothing that you can do that's going to keep yourself from sinning just a little bit. And so he's saying, control 
that wickedness that you have inherently in you that is going to constantly try to fight its way to the top, constantly find permission in your mind to do the things that God has told you not to do. He says, keep it in control. Solomon says in verse 18 that it's good for us to hold on tight to both of these ideas because it is the one who fears God who will end up being successful at avoiding both of these extremes. It's the one that fears God that is going to avoid being excessively righteous in their own mind. And it's the one who fears God who's going to be excessively wicked because they understand who God is and what that does to their relationship. Right? You cannot fear God and have extreme pride in yourself. You can't do it. And once you realize the position that your sin puts you in before a holy and righteous God, you simply cannot look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm killing it. I got it going on. You can't do that. Right? You can't be thinking, I'm such a godly person. My Bible reading and my prayer time, I'm just such a good Bible reader. Right? I love God so much more than the people around me. I am amazing. If you think that, then you really don't have a clue how far down this slippery slope of sin that you have gone down. If you truly fear God, all you can think when you look at your life is, oh man, the closer I get to God, the more sin I find in myself. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our sin is like being covered in garbage and mud and feces. And we're stuck in a dark, stinky room. Now, we don't know that we're covered in all that mess before our salvation because Scripture tells us our eyes are blinded to the truth and that our hearts are dead. And so we don't know that we're covered in this. And if we did know, because our hearts are dead, we would not care. We come to faith in Christ when the Holy Spirit changes our heart and when He opens our eyes to the truth of who we really are and who God really is. God is holy and righteous. He does not tolerate even the slightest hint of sin in our lives, and yet we are covered in it from top to bottom to the deepest depth of our heart. There isn't anything that sin has not contaminated. This is what we talk about when we're talking about total depravity. It's not necessarily that we are as bad as we could possibly be. It's that there is nothing in us that is not depraved. There's no section in us that is righteous. The gospel tells us that we cannot stand before God the Father with garbage on us and we simply cannot clean ourselves up on our own. So we need Jesus to clean us up. Right? He replaces our sinfulness with His righteousness through His life, death, and resurrection. He lived the perfect life that we can't live. He died the death that we deserve. He took every ounce of God's wrath for those who will put their faith in Him, and we get the gift of His righteousness. That's our only hope. 
in Christ, God no longer sees our sin. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus. But that doesn't change the fact that we are still sinful people with a sin nature that needs to be sanctified. So when our eyes are open to the truth, there's like this little light in this dark, sneaky room that's far away. And from that light, we kind of look down and we're like, oh, this is disgusting. And so we do the best that we can because we know what we're supposed to be. So we try to clean ourselves off a little bit. That's the process of sanctification. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. And so we try to clean that off. And as we do, we step closer to God. And when we step closer to God, we step closer to His light. And that light shines brighter on us and we see more of what we are covered in. And we go, oh, it's worse than I thought. And so we clean that up just a little bit. And as we clean that up, we take a step closer to God and the light gets brighter and it's worse than we thought. We're still covered in it. Now we're not where we used to be, but we're not where we need to be. And every time if we are wise and understand our sin nature, we realize it's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. Praise Jesus for the cross. The closer you get, the more you realize how much junk you have on your heart, in your life, and on and on it goes. So a person that understands the gospel correctly cannot possibly think, I'm so amazing. God is so lucky to have me. It's not feasible for those who understand the gospel to have that mindset. And on the flip side of this, a person that fears God will not test the Lord by trying to see how much they can get away with. Right? We understand that there is grace to cover all of our sin. All of it. All of it. But with that mindset, we should not then be testing God to see, if I do this, will you forgive me? If I do this, will you forgive me? If I do this, will you forgive me? We should not be walking in such a way that our life goes, wait, is this sin? And we go to the very far edge of what sin might be and try to get as close to that edge as we can to see, can I go this far and not be sinning? Can I go this far and not be sinning? Because eventually, the closer you get to the edge, eventually you will fall off into sin. The Christian life is about going the other way. Is this as holy as I can be? No. Is this as holy as I can be? What can I give to the Lord so that I move closer to Him in every moment, every day, every year of my life? Is this holy enough? A wise person who fears God understand, understands that there is weakness in our nature. And it's just something that we should expect. We're going to fail. We're going to fall, but we should never get comfortable with that weakness. We should never excuse that weakness. And we should never intentionally give in to that and simply rely on God's grace to cover it up. This is what Solomon means by not being excessively righteous or excessively wicked. We should be moving towards Jesus and every way shape and form that we can possibly do knowing that we're not going to be righteous enough for that knowing that we don't earn that or deserve that 
but we should also not presume upon the grace of God. And that brings us to the end of verse 18. So, see what I mean about not freaking out? Because here we are. Uh, After this, Solomon tells us in verse 19 uh, that wisdom makes us stronger than assigned power. And then he gives us a warning about caring too much about what people say about us in verses 20 and 21. Verse 19 says, Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. So he's saying here that wisdom, if we can acquire wisdom, if we can hold on to it and and use it well, it makes us more powerful than assigned power. These people, these ten rulers of a city, they're assigned to rule over the city. But if they are not wise, they can do more destruction in their power than someone who is one person who's wise. So he's saying here, be understand that your power means nothing if you have not if you don't have wisdom. And understand that people with power need your wisdom. Right? And then again he says there's no one righteous in all of the earth. And he warns us because of that, because there is no one righteous in all of the earth, you need to be really really careful how much you listen to what people say, especially about you. Because eventually you might find yourself hearing your servant say bad things about you. As I was reading this, one of the commentators said that there's an old proverb that says uh, someone's valet, so someone that takes care of them, uh, you never want to know too much of the truth of what your valet thinks of you. Those who serve you may not have the highest of affection for you depending on what type of person you are. And he says here that you need to be mindful, even if you do hear some of those bad things that someone might say about you, that, look, you're not perfect. You have said bad things about other people as well. So you can't be too upset because you are not righteous any more than those people are righteous. And then lastly, to close out, 23 to 29, it says, I have tested all of this by wisdom. I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? I turn my thoughts to know, explore, and examine wisdom and explanation uh, for things and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap. Her heart a net and her hands chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says the teacher, I have discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation which my soul continually searches for but does not find. I found one person in a thousand, but none of those was a woman. Only see this, I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. So here we're seeing the weakness of wisdom. Solomon says he has tested all of these things with wisdom, and yet the the ultimately being wise has eluded him. All the wisdom that he had has not brought him any sense of gratification. It hasn't brought him any sense of satisfaction. He's saying that there is no ultimate gain in wisdom. It certainly makes life easier 
from a worldly point of view. Right? If we are wise, we don't fall into sinful traps, which is what he's talking about with this woman that he mentions. Right? The death, bit more bitter than death is the woman who is a trap. Her heart a net and her hands chains. Solomon, if you know his story, had a thousand women in his life. A thousand women. And he was constantly looking for something in each one of these. And all of these women led him astray. They led him to worship other gods. They caused turmoil and strife in his lives. He, in his life, he's looking for something to find in this. And yet he's saying this is a trap. And we again see how he feels about himself here by saying that the one who pleases God will escape her. We don't fall into that trap. And if we desire to please God in our life with our relationships, we will see the, the trap that's there and we will try to escape. It says the sinner doesn't. The sinner thinks this is a good idea. The sinner goes into that relationship and the sinner reaps the consequences of that relationship. As wise as Solomon was, he was constantly falling into the trap of seductive women and he kept falling down the wrong path. He kept going down the path of excessive wickedness. He acknowledges at the very end that God made people well. Right? He made them to be upright and to be sinless. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, we see at the end of it all, God says that His creation was what? Very good. Very good. But what happens? The people that He created pursued their own way. Pursued their own way. They thought, I would rather be God than worship God. I would rather have His power than lean into His power. And they decided to sin against God, to, to become like God, and it wound up being foolishness and folly. So we all lack wisdom. We all pursue folly. But if we are in Christ, we have been set free from our slavery to sin. We don't have to constantly go back to making the same mistakes like Solomon did. He made the same mistakes over and over and over again. And we get the benefit on this side of Ecclesiastes. We get to see the mistakes that he made. And if we are wise people, we will not make the same mistakes that he made. In Christ, we have been set free from foolishness. We have been set free from folly. We don't have to pursue this. And if we are wise, we will make good choices based on what Christ has told us in his word on how we are to live. So my question today is, how are you living? Are you in here this morning? Are you puffed up with your own self-righteousness? Are you here thinking how grateful God must be to have you on his team? Are you in here thinking that you got this Christianity thing down and you are killing it? Or are you in here on the other side of that is this just the thing that you do to check off your box, hoping that God won't mind how you lived your life prior to coming in here this morning? How are you doing? What about your life needs to change 
so that you would follow this path of wisdom that Solomon is trying to lay out for us? What sin pattern are you clinging to that you know is in your life, that you know that it's the trap, just like this seductive woman that he talked about at the end of this chapter, this is the trap that you keep falling into over and over and over again. Why, why won't you just let that go? How can we help? Right? How can the church surround you in that and help you with the combined wisdom of everyone that's here? But we, we need to know you before that's possible. You have to let us in. I want to be there for you in these struggles. And I want you to be there for me in mine. Right? I can assure you that I do not believe that I have arrived. I can assure you that I do not think that God is, should be grateful to have me on his team. I'm kind of surprised that I made it. You know what I'm saying? But how are you doing this morning? Is there anything that we can be praying for you about? As we close, if there's anything that you need prayer for, I'll be sitting right here waiting to hear from you. And if not, I can talk to you after the service if that's what you like. But I'm praying that we are wise people that are constantly growing in our righteousness and are constantly moving away from that excessive wickedness. Let's pray about that today. Father, we're grateful for your love, for the sacrifice of Jesus for the fact that you have offered us wisdom if we will seek it without doubting. Lord, I pray that our eyes are open and that our hearts perceive all that you have done for us and all that is available to us in Christ. And I pray that we would take whatever, whatever sin is constantly tangling us up and tripping us up and sending us down the excessively wicked path. I pray that we would be uh, willing to put that sin to death. That we have, we would recognize that we have that power through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would be so significantly changed by the beauty of the gospel that when we leave this place, people would wonder what is different about us. And that we would be so incredibly grateful for all that you've given us that we would willingly share that information with all who come a, across our path. So, Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to be grateful. I ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen.